You are listening to The Heart of Christ, a year-long podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. Throughout 2022, we will spend time reflecting on Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, so we can come to know not only what Jesus has done, but who he is. What is his deepest heart for his people, people who are weary, stumbling, sinners, and sufferers? So we invite you to grab your Bibles, prepare your hearts, and come along with us as we find rest in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. Welcome to episode 13 of The Heart of Christ. My name is Keith Winder, one of the pastors here at Wheatland, and today I'm joined by Samuel Spatola. Samuel's the Director of Student Ministries and Outreach at Wheatland. And since Samuel is so intentional, much better than me, about engaging with people and enfolding people into the life of our church, I'm not going to have you introduce yourself, Samuel. If you really don't know Samuel, you could go back to episode maybe three or four and hear him talk about himself. Uh, so Samuel and I are going to be reflecting on chapter 14 of Gentle and Lowly. Um, and Samuel, I did, not, I did not share this question with you, so I'm going to ask uh-huh. you one. It's not on the list, but I promise it's, it's an easy one. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it's easy, okay? This is episode 13, and we're talking about chapter 14, which really bugs me. Does it bother you? It does. I almost thought of saying <laughs> something about it, and I, I wasn't sure. Is this like uh, the 13th floor in a hotel where you, uh, oh, where yeah, you, that's you pretend true. it's where not even skip, there? Yes, yeah, you yeah, skip it. I was, I was wondering what No. What that so was what, about. So what happened was, um, at some point, we did two episodes in one, because I thought that they worked together. Okay, yeah. So then we were one ahead, like we are now. So then I did an episode where I just talked about John Bunyan and Thomas Goodwin, and then we got even. We were even again. And then last time, Krista Bush and I did two, cha- two chapters in one. But it really bothers me, episode 13, chapter 14. I, I, like, I like symmetry. Yeah, yeah so it. I'll have to figure it. something out just so they can get back even again. <laughs> so chapter 14 opens with a, a quote by A.W. Tozer. Do you, dis- do you pronounce it Tozer or Tozer? I've always said Tozer. Tozer okay. I- A.W. Tozer. And what, he says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So anytime someone makes a quote and says something is the most important, (laughs) first of all, you should listen. uh, And then second of all, you got to decide if you actually agree with it. So first of all, Tozer's not here. (laughs) He's not on the call line here at at Wheeland. But what do you think about that statement? Do you agree? And... And if so, or at least if you agree with it partially, why do you think it's so important for us to have an accurate image of who God is? Yeah, um, so this is a quote I've actually thrown up on PowerPoint slides before. Oh, I've nice. used it in classes. I think I've used it, I used it even this past spring with the students on Sunday nights. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's helpful, and I don't think it's the last word on how we formulate, I think, our understanding of God and who he is. And so it, it, it answers the question, I think, at least in part, or it, it's at least in part the right answer. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll say that, that. I think it's helpful, and I think it does define a lot of how we relate and understand God based on, I think, prior experience and mm-hmm. and how we think he acts and behaves and relates to us is 
very important. I, I don't think it's, again, it's not the last word and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a, 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 this might be helpful, or something of an example. Um, I grew up overseas, and I think if you listen to episode three or four, you'd get more mm-hmm. of my bio, but um, uh, I grew up in Italy. My parents were missionaries there, and that's a majority Catholic country. And uh, there's churches virtually everywhere, and a lot of them are very old, and so the artwork is oftentimes from the Middle Ages. And uh, growing up, I, I think what usually—God the Father is not often depicted, but typically when, he's, when he is depicted in frescoes or paintings or um, other mosaics, uh, it, it, what seems dominant is his wrath and his power and uh, perhaps judgment. So sometimes you'll see scenes of God literally on the judgment seat. And, and so I think it's easy for people to have harsh and wrathful and kind of uh, judgmental kind of ideas that pop into their minds when they first think about God or when they think about what he is like. Um, and that's just an example. I think there's probably other ways in which that's painted or enters people's minds. But I think it's an easy... Um, uh, mistake to make, and I think, and kind of the flip side of that would be that Jesus was often depicted as kind of gentle and lowly, and mm-hmm. often with kids sitting on his lap or feeding people, and so, Sheep. yeah, yeah. So there, there, I think even even in my own, I guess, imagination growing up, like that, the two were kind of divided. That had kind of different goals: the Father and the Son, which I think this chapter is great at. Mm-hmm. I think, kind of uh, picking apart in a sense. Yeah. Do you but, think, like, do you think that? Um, like Orland talks at the beginning, like that's sort of his, the reason he stops and does a chapter on yeah. the Father, even though this is a book about Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's like, I feel like I need to do this to correct. In interacting with this this statement from Tozer, he's like, I feel like I need to make sure that people have this starting point of an accurate image. And yeah, that, that's sort of the images that you're seeing in art growing up. The fascinating thing is, I think these haven't really changed. Right. Like, yeah, yeah we yeah, still, <laughs> we still, if we have faulty uh, views, like whether it's teenagers now, young adults, older adults, it just seems like we all, we still struggle with faulty views. And actually, I mean, I was going to ask you to share some of those faulty views, but you've, like, in a sense, bringing them up now. It seems like it's the same ones. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it seems right. like for hundreds of years we have struggled with the same sort of... It doesn't seem like we bounce around, like, oh, in this generation we feel like the Father is this, and in this yeah, generation... Yeah. It does seem like we as people have struggled with the same faulty images yeah. uh, of God. I, I think that's right. I have. I wrote, I jotted down a few here. Like, I, I think... And, um, yeah, I, I think for some people, God's like a drill sergeant. Like, he's in in your face. Mm-hmm. He's demanding, like, um, you're not ever quite measuring up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's this harsh taskmaster, perhaps. Um, I think for others, he's kind of like this grandfather figure. Like, uh, it, this is kind of going back to the Tozer question, like, what comes to mind. I think for others, he just wants you to be happy and, like, kind of like a grandfather mm-hmm. that wants to spoil a kid or a grandchild just give you whatever you want and and um, as long as you're fulfilled and happy that that's his main goal I think for others this is more like of a deist kind of view of things like maybe he created everything but has kind of stepped away from things mm-hmm. and things are just kind of unfolding like they're supposed to I guess but he's not intimately connected or or in our lives um, I think and I this is the one and I, I guess you're gonna get this well I'm not I'm not 
preemptively get to your question, yeah, I guess. Because yeah. uh, I know you're going to ask, uh, how do people I interact or minister to or mm-hmm. work with, how do they uh, tend to see God? And I, I think, and I've actually talked around the office with you and Luke about this uh, a few months ago, I think. But I think what I'm hearing people give voice to or talk about a lot is that um, they sort of feel God is perhaps often or maybe constantly uh, disappointed with them mm. that they have somehow or pretty consistently um, fail him or disappoint him and so I think um, yeah I think for a lot of people even believers that I interact with I think a lot of times in their minds God is again disappointed perhaps mad at them um, and it's because they have not measured up and, and they've again they've kind of are constantly disappointing him. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that that would kind of be why I think things are hovering right now. Yeah. Yeah, but, and I I was thinking about me, like how, what are the sort of faulty images that I have? And I was thinking how mine tend to shift. Like, I don't think I have one f- faulty image of God's character, particularly the Father's character, but it tends to change based on like mm-hmm. how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So like when I'm struggling and I'm sinning, I tend to see that God, I tend to think that God's annoyed with me. Like maybe angry with me, but I don't think angry, but but definitely annoyed. And then sometimes I think that he might even just be ignoring me because he's just sick and tired of forgiving me. Right. Like that's how I tend to yeah, think. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, that's why I, I picture him as being annoyed with me. Like he's just so sick of like, we're doing this again? Like, I, like how many times? And I know that's, I know that's not how God is toward me. But that is the faulty image. But then when I think about when things are going well in my life, I still see God. And maybe it relates to the sort of drill sergeant thing. I still yeah. see God like that he's nitpicking at the little things. Like even in the midst of something good or something like uh, successful that's happening in my life, whatever, he's still like finding the fault. And, like, yeah, but, but you also did this. Or your better. heart. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And, but it's interesting because like that wasn't the model. So I know, and, and I'll, I'll ask you about it, and we'll talk about it, or maybe I'll just mention it at the end. Like, I know that our, fa- our, act- our, biologi- our dads that we have, right. our earthly fathers, or whoever played that father figure, obviously very much influences the way that we think about God, the father, just mm-hmm. because of the word in one sense. But my dad wasn't like that. Like, my, my dad didn't, wasn't nitpicky. Yeah. He didn't, like always point out that even when I did something successful like I don't know if I'm playing sports and we won a soccer game and I scored two goals he doesn't come over yeah but that one play like he would just celebrate with me so I don't know why I have that because it's not based on personal experience but I definitely have that sort of um, maybe critical like that the God the Father is critical and he's almost constantly <laughs> frustrated with me, and that is my faulty image that I have. It's not of Jesus, but it's the image I have of the Father, much more so. I think, um, yeah, so then the other thing that I wanted to ask and get at was because, so Orland says, he's like, I need to do, I think he said it, either in the Spirit chapter or maybe this chapter, I remember which one it was, but he said, like, he felt like he needed to devote a chapter to the Holy Spirit and the Father, even though this is a book about Jesus. And and I find it, like, like you were starting to get at, like, I find it common that we have different images of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we've attached different characteristics. Even though in the scriptures, like in Exodus 34, when it describes God as gracious, compassionate, mm-hmm. so like, like, mm-hmm. that's not just, that's God, the triune God, all three. Yeah. 
but we still tend to have faulty images that differ. And yeah, have you found have you found that? And have you found um, have you found that we in a positive way? Like, do we have a hard time seeing God, the Father, as so? If we see Jesus as compassionate, mm-hmm. I imagine most people see Jesus as compassionate and and kind and forgiving. Do we also see the Father as that? Um, do we see the Holy Spirit as that? If we most people think of the Holy Spirit as like a comforter or a helper, yeah, yeah. Do we see the Father as the comforter and the helper, or or have we failed to sort of do all that? Uh, combine all them together and see the God God really as the united triune God. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I get why we do it and um, and all that, but I think what we perhaps forget is that they are they're linked in common mission. So they, they so their desires and what they want to accomplish is yeah. is, is is the same. And so I think yeah, that pitting them against one another or saying that God the Father is the wrathful one and the judge kind of holds a line on things whereas Jesus just will let you in and it's, you know, it's just yeah. nothing but love and hearts or whatever. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not, I, I think, I think that's a failure on, on our part more than biblical revelation or, or um, anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know why we do that. Like it feels mm-hmm. like it's really easy to, I, even, I think this is even cross-culturally like this holds, I think Christians... Uh, throughout the world and as far as I know even throughout church history kind of have those tendencies so I'm not sure what the genesis of that is or why that's so mm-hmm. but um, intuitively I think it's the wrong move and I, I don't think that's how we should think of it but for whatever, whatever reason it's super easy to fall into that and yeah. so um, and, and I have I think very similar experiences to you of having a really good earthly father and um, but still struggle with some of the same stuff you mentioned so yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I like I like that idea that that the triune God is on the same mission and the heart of God drives that mission. So it's not like Jesus had this heart and he had to convince the Father right, and the right. Holy Spirit to participate. Like, guys, I've got this idea for redemption. Or that the Father didn't have this idea and he had to convince Jesus, look, this is what you're going to do. I know you're not going to want to do it. But that's, yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever... Yeah. I don't think I've ever led with that idea that like no there God yeah. has has a mission and right, and right. they the heart of all three is moving toward that. That's So Erlen actually makes that point. I'm trying to find it here in the chat. I have that chapter open in front of me, but he he mentions that um that essentially the father did not have to persuade the son into this mission or to yeah. sacrificing yeah. or or that uh, that um a real sacrifice had to be made. Like they were on the same page and again they're linked together in common mission, and so, yeah. So, so within the the Trinity, like within our Godhead, there's not this conflict or this mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, this difficulty, and I guess for obvious reasons. But yeah, we most certainly struggle with it. But I, I think what is helpful is to keep that what I just mentioned in mind that, yeah. that common mission. Yeah, the they, common they, mission. They're flowing out of the same place. That's helpful. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And and we think about their mission. So we sing in Christ alone at our church. I imagine like every Reformed church now sings it because mm-hmm. we're all in love with the Gettys. And uh, and so part of that is on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so this understanding, I mean, this understanding has been the sort of historic view of the Christian church for years and years and years that God's justice is vindicated and his wrath is satisfied in the work of Jesus on the cross. 
But then I like that idea, coming to it as this is a unified mission and the heart of the triune God is moving toward that. Because I think it helps us stay away from the danger of thinking that the Father's heart toward us is different than the Son's heart toward us. That the Father was less inclined to love and forgive, um, but the Son was more inclined to do so. And of course, Ortland, 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 Ortland agrees, and I, I agree as well, that this isn't what the Bible teaches. But I like how he dis- draws this distinction. And I, I'd never heard this before. Maybe I should have Samuel, uh, but I'd never heard this before. So this is how he does it. He, he says, he draws a distinction between the satisfaction of the Father's wrath at a legal level and the satisfaction of the Father's wrath at the desire and affection level. So he says that, uh, this isn't a quote, this is me trying to unpack it, that objectively or legally the wrath of God towards sin had to be satisfied, he says. But then at the desire, like the sort of heart affection level, yeah. that the Father is just as desiring as the Son for the atonement of our sin to take place. Yeah. And I, I really liked that. I mean, I, yeah. I have thoughts on it, but like, how did you find that was helpful um, in shaping? Like, had you ever heard that before? I'd never, uh, maybe it's not, in a book that I should have read and I never no, did. No, I don't think articulated <laughs> quite like that. And I think that he makes it pretty straightforward. I think that's, it's helpful. Yeah, I, I don't think God like finds pleasure in, in how we, his ultimate goal I think is the atonement. It's not to dish out punishment or to mm-hmm. be punitive just yeah. for the sake of being punitive. I think his the end goal is is what is ultimately in mind, and that's the atonement of many. Like so, I, I think, um, yes, yeah, so this was helpful. I'm not sure if that's quite yeah. what you're getting. No, at, I, but, no, I agree. That's, yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Like yeah. that, the heart of God, or like, I forget. He says the desire or affection level. Uh-huh. Like the heart of God is for the atonement, for rescue, right, of right. His people, and in order for that to be accomplished, the the sort of legal level and not that God was trapped into it but but that his justice requires pun it, sin Sacrifice. to be punished yeah, or dealt right, with right and so yeah I just liked that I liked I liked that idea that his heart draws his heart makes him want to rescue his people and his justice not they're not in conflict with each other but like now the sort of legal in quotes uh what's necessary legally is for our sin to be dealt with for us to receive that rescue and so I, I, I like that because it moves me away from thinking that wrath is his heart and in the same way that in Exodus 34 it says his his characteristic is not he's angry it's he's slow to anger yeah right and it's never God is never characterized as like that's not a character trait he can become angry because of our sin or because of evil but he's not an angry God in the yeah. sense that it's a primary character trait. I think what's also helpful is that to keep in mind, I mean, in order to, what what does God sacrifice or give of to to reach or to to um yeah, to 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 um to get to the atonement. Like you it's it's the yeah. sacrifice of his son. So yeah. it's um yeah, I mean he has literally skin in the game as well. Like he's as invested as anyone could ever be. And he's got and it's it's it, it's of so it's the son, and that's one thing he only has one of. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. There's not. There's not an endless supply of sons, yeah. or and so, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So as hard as it is to, I think at times make sense of God's wrath and of, um, um, just the idea of him on a legal level satisfying uh, what we just talked about. 
I think keeping in mind what he gives up or has to give up is is also important, and he does that. Yeah. I think um, lovingly and out of love and out of mercy, and again, it's his son. So it's it's. Yeah, I, I, to me that that's helpful as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that that there's, yeah, like there's, a, there's a deep things. investment. Yeah, right. It's right. not. Yeah, and so he doesn't do of, it and just you know. Yeah, it's easy. there's never like, an indifference, or it's never right. like this is easy. There's no callousness. Yeah, this is yeah. there's a deep investment. Um, so so the foundational verse that Orland uses is the Second Corinthians one three. He always has the verse listed at the beginning of the chapter which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And I was thinking that if we read this verse too quickly, we come away thinking that God is merciful and that he brings comfort, which is true. God is merciful and he brings comfort. But when you look closely at it, like there's so much more to what Paul's saying, that God, the Father, is not only merciful, but he is the Father of mercies. And so in that sense, I think Ortland gets into this, that in that sense, all mercy that's extended in the world, like everything that you do that's merciful, everything that I do that's merciful, every, every act of mercy comes from God. Like that is us as human beings imaging yeah. our, our Father. And so when someone, yeah, when someone shows mercy, he's Im- an image bearer of, of the Father. And, and Thomas Goodwin, he uses another quote of him, talks about how this comes naturally to our Heavenly Father that it sort of pours out mm-hmm. from him in, in abundance. And he says this, so he starts talking about Jesus, Goodwin, and then moves on to the Father. And this is what he says. Thomas Goodwin says, Jesus' love is not a forced love. The disposition is free and natural to him, or else he should not be God's son, nor take after his Heavenly Father. Unto whom, unto the Father, it is natural to show mercy, but not so punish, which is his strange work. Mercy pleases him. He is the Father of mercies, and he begets them, or he begets mercies naturally. And I, I love that. I thought that was, um, it was, I love the idea of thinking about this, of mercy as being the natural thing and punishment being the strange work. Mm-hmm. But how do you think that, so if we are supposed to be imaging God, image bearers of God, and we think about the fact that mercy is the thing that naturally just spills out of him, how do you think that shapes then us as we interact with with others? Not just your kids. I mean, yes, your kids because you're the father of your children. Yeah. But how does that shape how we interact all others, or at least think about our heart toward others? Yeah. yeah I, I think. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that we sh- we should be thankful and praise and thank God that um, that that humans can do this. Like that. I, that I think there's some <laughs> common grace things that are happening. Yeah. These are good yeah. things that um, that uh, uh, sinful people can. Uh, I don't want to get in trouble how I articulate this, but that we we can show mercy and that 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 is um, that we're imitating in some fashion. Yeah, yeah like our capacity uh, good things to do about this God. Yeah. is is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> because, we should celebrate and and, yeah. and and be grateful for that the good thing that that is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like I like his language here that it, it that it, it's kind of birthed out of God or begets. Like it, mm-hmm. I think the idea there is that this is. Um, um, he, he brings us into the world or just flows yeah. out of him. I think that yeah. image of flowing yeah, out is nice. really good too. Yeah. So it seems like it's, 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 uh, it's coming out of the deepest parts of who God is. And so, and this kind of gushes out, um, as it relates to us, I, I think, I don't think we get there early in our sanctification, I guess. I think this is mm-hmm. something that we're, we're, we're pushing and, and aiming at. And, um, and even the idea that would flow naturally out of us, I think, 
the less mature you are or earlier in our sanctification, this is a lot more work and a lot more difficult. I think as we become increasingly more sanctified and more um, uh, imaging Christ more and becoming yeah. uh, more godly, I mean, there's many words you can use to describe that. I think it actually does become easier and it does flow more naturally out of us. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's, I guess that's later in our, in our sanctification, right? That's, that, that's, that's an expression of greater maturity. But I don't know if that's answering mm-hmm. your question. Right? No, I like, I like that, that because that, I, I like that. I, is it Second Corinthians 3 somewhere where it says we're being conformed to the image of our son, yep, Jesus? Yep, yep. And so obviously there's, when the Bible talks about us being the image of God, there's two things going on. One is that every single human being is made in the image of God and we reflect God. And then it, by common grace... We can all be merciful, whether we follow Jesus or not. Mm-hmm. You see acts of mercy all around mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. and those are like good works, maybe not with a capital G, but they're good things, and they all reflect God. I'd like to be the receiver of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> please, please, yeah. please bring it on. Yeah. But then also, as you're describing, like in our in our Christian life, as we grow in our discipleship and our being sanctified, we're more reflecting the image of Jesus in that way. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's that's a lovely way to think of it. That as we become more like Christ, this more this does more naturally yeah. flow out of yeah. us. That that that's how it should be. As our sins being mortified and we are becoming more like Christ, our our first inclination towards someone should hopefully more and more be mercy and not judgmentalism right. or exactly. indifference yeah. or, or something yeah. or something like that. And I even see it like I even see it in I don't know, somebody somebody that we don't know stops in to, well, here's an example. So we're down at General Assembly in Birmingham, Alabama last week, and Luke and his friend Brandon and I are, are walking toward uh, to do this civil rights tour, and somebody on the street stops us and asks us for money. And so, uh, which happened a lot more down there than other places, mm. which I, I don't yeah. know exactly what's going why. But, so somebody asks us for money, and Luke's natural inclination <laughs> was just like, well, yeah, of course I'm going to help. And it might not have been necessarily give money. I mean, that's what, he, that's what he did. But, like, his first thought is, of course I'm going to, of course I'm going to be merciful. Not merciful. Of course I'm going to be generous and compassionate towards this person. And it wasn't, it's not always my. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it not, it's not. And I, yeah, so I long to be, and I get that there's like, sometimes you shouldn't give somebody money, you should, but that, if that's beside the point. It's like, what right. my, natu- my first natural thought, what is it? Is it, okay, how can I help? Okay, yeah. now be wise about how you help. But my first thought should be, how can I help? Okay, now how do I do this well? But that's not always my yeah. first thought. Yeah. Like half the time my first thought is like, how can I get away and get to what I want to be doing? Uh, and so in that moment, yeah, I saw like Luke and Brandon, his friend, like, they, they had, they, the, it flew, it flowed out of them. Yeah. The, the mercy of God in a way that it, that it didn't. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, from me. that, at least when it comes to the Christian life, that's, that is my understanding that, that this one that we're all on the way, right? So we're, we're, we're at various stages, mm-hmm. but that the, 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 the goal or to tell us or the end goal is greater Christ likeness. And I, my understanding again is as, your Christ-likeness increases, it actually becomes easier or flows more naturally out of you to be mm-hmm. to be that, to be yeah. merciful, to be loving, um, 
but that, I think that's a, a distinct sign of Christian like maturity yeah. of, of having grown up in, in a sense spiritually. Yeah, right. Yeah, it takes the work of engaging in a relationship with with God throughout your life. It's not just. It's not necessarily just age. <laughs> like I can yeah. I can ignore God for the next twenty years, and my I'm not going to grow in my sanctification. It's it's engaging in a relationship. So he doesn't just say that in this verse, Paul, that the Father is the Father of mercies. He also says that he's the God of all comfort, which Ortland just almost entirely ignored. I'd like to publicly <laughs> publicly state. Call him out. Right yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Second edition. Yeah, I, I know. Make that yeah. correction. So and that's fine. Uh, but, but I still found it fascinating because in the same way, it doesn't just say that God brings comfort, which he does, but it says he is the, that the Father is the God of all comfort. So it's that any time someone is a, providing comfort for someone, any time that you and I are sitting around with someone, you're sitting with someone in a living room or in the pew or at a coffee shop and you're bearing their burdens and they're bringing them the comfort of the gospel, like you are reflecting the heart of God the Father. And so all comfort, even if people don't even know it, <laughs> all comfort people bring um, comes from the love of God and the mm-hmm. Father. So I want, I, want to read, um, I want to read this thing from Isaiah 40. Uh, God is telling Isaiah to bring comfort to Israel. And so this is how he says it. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that made me think about the reality that in the Bible, the thing that brings comfort is the gospel of salvation. Like that, ultimately, yeah. that, is, that is the only comfort that there is. I mean, other things can bring some sort of like temporary comfort. I was thinking about um, Nora recently got a big cut on her eye or maybe a bug bite on her eye, which Ooh. just, oh, uh, just that, that thought of a bug bite on your eye. Uh, but... So the doctor gave her two types of medicine. One was like the, just the drop that numbs her eye and gives her the short-term comfort. And she used the term comfort. This will give you short-term comfort. And then she gave her the, the, the drops for uh, like the fight away infection. He said, she says, this will give you the long-term comfort. Huh. And yeah. so like, that was even how the, the, she described it. And I thought like, for us as Christians, like comfort, the gospel is short-term and long-term comfort. Okay. And yeah. I think that's what's being described in in here, in Isaiah 40, this comfort mm. of people, that when Isaiah goes, he's going to bring short-term comfort. But it's also, it's long-term comfort, yeah. and this is yeah. good news. So, like, what, what sort of, how do you think that this is comforting, these words? If it says, comfort, comfort my people, and then he tells them what to say, tells Isaiah what to say, to the people of Israel, to Jerusalem. Like, how do these verses bring us comfort? How does this bring us comfort? Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I I, I hear or I, I follow as you're reading that, those verses, and none of that would bring at least me right now in my life. I take your comfort. I don't need my mm. rocky roads to be made smooth, or whatever. But the sense I get is that um, God has has saved us and he has redeemed us and that is that kind of maybe long-term comfort and that, mm-hmm. that is 
all it's beyond what we deserve. But uh, what strikes me, I guess, is that there's also short-term comfort, or as, as you go along, God also continues to be really generous and merciful and, and comfort us in various ways. And I guess what, in, when I, what comes to mind here is that it's not really a one-size-fits-all kind of comfort that he dispenses, mm-hmm. but that this is personalized or customized or it's like bespoke comfort that he gives us as individuals. And I think that's helpful because, again, when you think of God, or to answer an earlier question, uh, Tozer's question or his, his statement, uh, what comes to mind or that's the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Um, I think it's important not just to think of God broadly or that he likes and, and provides for all humans ever. Like that's true and that's mm-hmm. good, but to also personalize that and to, and to bear in mind that he loves Keith Winder specifically, he loves mm-hmm. Samuel Spatola like specifically, yeah. like individually, yeah. and that the comfort he dispenses, the comfort that he gives and, and that he loves to give as we read elsewhere in this book, um, can and is personalized to us. It's according, it's according to our context and our needs. and. Uh, so I think that's comforting. I'm not sure if that's quite answering mm-hmm. your question, but I, that, that yeah, yeah that, I, that, act, that kind of comfort is actually comforting to me. And I, I think that's actually uh, a, nece- a necessary and helpful thing and I think, our Reformed tradition to talk about, like that it is personalized in a sense, because, because of covenant theology and how mm-hmm. like we, we tend to... Um, push back on like the over-individualized right. so message of the gospel. Is, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's yeah. helpful. We need to do that. But if we do it so much that we lose the fact that like, oh no, God does care about all of you individually. And he, yeah. he knows all of you way better than you know yourself. And he knows what it looks like to comfort you and bring, and bring hope. Yeah, we could push back so much on the individual stuff that we, that we can lose. Right. That we can lose some of that. And those critiques are fair. Like those yeah, are needed. Right. Like those correctives are needed. Those adjustments. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. It, in our in our attempts to say like no, God is always dealing with a people. He's always dealing with Israel. He's always dealing with families. He's always dealing. Uh, you also see him dealing with individuals, and he's not. He doesn't. He, he's doing both. Um, yeah, I think it's it's fascinating how we. I was, so when I'm thinking about talking about in the podcast and looking I just did a quick like run through of all of, of my bookshelves and tried to find books that were dedicated to helping explain God and particularly God the Father and so I mean I found three books really quickly and I'm not this is not like a book recommended this but the reason I'm mentioning it is because like this is not like everybody's struggling with this like everybody yeah. is struggling with who is God what do I think about God as like God the Father in relationship to Jesus like and and the things that you and I've talked about are the things that I think everyone is wrestling with so like yeah. the one book I have is God behaving badly is is the God of the Old Testament angry sexist and racist mm-hmm. and so it's is the God of the Old Testament and yeah, most people think of that as like the father. I'm not. Right, I'm right. not trying to draw some distinction. But even that, like that. pitting of the two yeah, testaments right, against right. one oh, another well, we is not helpful. We yeah. wouldn't ask, "Is the God of the New Testament angry, sexist, or racist?" Maybe people would, but like that's the books about the God of the Old Testament. And Christopher Wright has a book called "The God I Don't Understand," and it's all questions. Yeah. Like most of them are from Old Testament questions. And then Paul Copen, I think mm-hmm. Copen has "Is God a Moral Monster?" Making sense of the Old Testament God, and he has a new, like a new version of this just came out this year too. Right. Um, I think it's pronounced Copan. Copan is that? Oh, I, don't know. I, <laughs> <make it> <laughs> I know it's Paul. That's all I know. Right. And so, like, 
Like these are the questions that Christians, non-Christians, like I know this is the sort of question, like trying to have what Tozer says. Like when we think about God, trying to have a clear, accurate picture of who God is, is the, is the question that everybody is struggling with. I mean, it's a question that people, um, yeah, like yeah, so many people have struggled with this throughout history and continue. Are yeah, continue no, I think that's right. I think it's on the forefront of all of our minds, all the time. And I mentioned earlier that I, I I've observed that this is I think, uh, and I, this is not an exhaustive statement of whatever, but I think this is like cross cultural. Like I think Christians of all stripes and, um, yeah, in, in many different countries ask very similar questions. I don't think this is yeah. just a Western you know yeah. question necessarily, right. but right. Yeah, that's helpful. And so just to close this thing out, I think it's interesting that uh, Philip, one of Jesus' followers, is struggling with this same question. So Philip asks in the Gospel of John, he asks Jesus, like, show us the Father. Um, And Philip wants to know what the Father's like. And I I don't know what his, I don't know what sort of uh, examples he's had in his life or that sort of thing, but he knows his his history uh, of Israel. So he asks what the Father's like. Um, and Jesus responds saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And that's why I'm really ha- help- thankful. I think it's really helpful and I'm thankful that Orland spent a chapter on the Father because it's a reminder that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And in Jesus, we see the heart of God walking around in time and space. And so when we see Jesus, or when we see the merciful and comforting heart of Jesus, we are seeing the merciful and comforting heart of the Father. And then because of that, we can find rest in Jesus and the Father, yeah. who is gentle and lowly in heart. And there is no distinction between those two. And that's hopefully what this chapter instills in us uh, more and more as we read. Well, thanks, Samuel, for hopping on board and chatting about the Father. And don't don't worry, Sam. I will get this confusion of episode 13. <laughs> we will get this we will get this fixed. It's good to be sooner, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Alright, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Heart of Christ podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit wheatlandpca.org.